I, I paid for a full hour. And uh, so if you need a tuition rebate of any sort, I'm sure you can see somebody out there at the table, and they'll be glad to give you a little bit of a tuition rebate, nickel, dime, something like that. Or you may have to pay them uh, for us starting a little late. Who knows? It's good to see you. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we have gone through, can you believe it? We've already gone through 12 verses. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know what got into my head. We're moving so fast. We'll slow down. Now, actually, we're going to take a lot of verses today. We're taking verses 13 through 21. And uh, let's take a look at it. You know, uh, sometimes I thought it'd just be great if God, when he saved us, would just immediately just take us right to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? You know, uh, they say, hey, where's Joe? I don't know. He got saved yesterday. He's gone. You know, just if he got saved, got taken out of this world and all your life is going to be great. All your relationships are perfect. Uh, you have 70 virgins. Oh, no, that's, that's the other religion. Uh, let's see. Uh, but anyway, things are really cool. You know, really great. But uh for reasons that, that God knows, and we're trying to find out, uh, that's not the way it happens. God has another plan, and his plan is to save us now through the gospel, right now, from the penalty of our sin. And we can know that. And that's a great relief uh, to know that no matter what happens in your life, uh, all the incredible dumb things you're going to do in the future, they're all covered. By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful gift. And then we are told that increasingly he's saving us from the power of sin. And sometimes it seems ever so slowly and it kind of goes like this. But if you cut a mean on those ups and downs, you're, you're generally going up uh, when, when you're in Christ. That's a wonderful thing to see increasing mastery, increasing self-control in your life. Increasingly doing things that are good for you and good for everybody else and glorifying to God. And you see that. Sometimes it seems ever so slow, slowly occurring, but it's happening in your life. That is happening now in this life. But we wait for the next life to be delivered from the presence of sin. So we're delivered from the penalty. We're delivered increasingly from the power. One day, even from the presence of sin. And that's when we, we have fully renewed bodies, just as our souls are regenerated and being renewed every day. One day our bodies will be regenerated. Everything about us will be new. There will be no decline, no arthritis, <laughs> no conflicts, no problem, no disappointments, no tears and sorrow. Uh, but we have to wait. And what we're told about our salvation is that we're saved through faith, but we're also saved in hope. And what we've seen in Peter's epistle is that he is writing to these folks up there in Northeast Asia to remind them of the great hope that they have. They, they are going places. They have a tremendous inheritance that will never perish or spoil or even fade. And it is waiting for them. They have this huge legacy that is theirs. But they have to live here now. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill once said that the most amazing thing God has ever done is to take unholy men in an unholy world, make them holy, Put them back in an unholy world and keep them holy in it. That's an amazing work. And that's what God is about. But it is done through hope. That is, we know where we're going. That's so important that we always have our eyes on the goal. That we're heavenly minded, if you will. We're thinking about the future. If you look at our city, for example, and you look at the major problems that we confront, and you could list those, uh, racial strife, uh, 
financial bankruptcy, poor educational system for most of our kids, uh, crime and drugs. If you, if you look at all of those major social problems, you'll find that they fester among people who don't have hope. And that's the reason the gospel is the ultimate answer. The gospel demonstrated in deeds of love and mercy and social justice and the gospel proclaimed in the resurrected Jesus Christ, because as we see in Peter's epistle, that's where our hope comes from. And when you know you've got hope, then you move ahead. When you're in despair, you become cynical and you become depressed and you give up. And then what are you looking for? You're looking to start a gambling industry. Yeah, I'm serious. You, you want to get, get it now. You want to you make a quick buck because you're hopeless about the future. So in order to live a meaningful life that is edifying for yourself and constructive for society and the people around you, you've got to be drawn out in your life by hope. And that's, that's what Peter is saying. Now let's look now. After Peter has presented that now in those first 12 verses that we spent two months on, let's see now, once, once we have that framework of hope, having been saved in hope, and so the essence of our salvation is to be a hopeful group of men. Now, what kind of life do we live? And you notice that in Paul's epistles, he, he often does this. He gives us the doctrinal matter, and then he goes into the ethical manner. And uh, you find that, for example, in Ephesians. first three chapters are largely doctrinal, laying the foundation of our salvation. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit at work in calling us. We saw this name in Bible study some years ago. And then chapter 4, Therefore, I urge you, to walk in a way worthy of the calling which you have received. That's the way Paul thinks. Doctrine first and then, and then lifestyle. In other words, you have to have the indicative before you have the imperative. The essence of legalism and moralism is to go off with the imperative before you have the indicative. The essence of nominalism and laziness and spiritual apathy is to take the indicative, what God has done for you, but not to hear the imperative, what we're supposed to be doing with it. And Christian men are those who put it together. They hear the indicative and they believe it with all their heart. And in light of that, they're going to live this way. So the indicative, if, if I could use a sort of a train analogy here or a train engine analogy, the indicative is, is the engine that, that really fires us up. Look what God has done for us. The tracks that the engine runs on is the imperative. So we've been looking largely at the engine. You've got to have the engine or you have no power, no spiritual power in your life. Now we're going to look at the tracks. Let's take a look at it then at 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now, Peter can't help himself. He, this is not a pure ethical paragraph. He has mixed ethics with, with theology, which is what we all should do. And you cannot separate what God has joined together. But in general, he's showing us now the implications of having this great hope in Christ. Now, notice, first of all, this means we've got to get moving. He says, prepare for action. The Christian life is a life on the move. We're on our rear ends thinking about God, studying the Bible. If this were the end of everything we do, I've got to tell you, this would be a waste of time. But we sit down, we reflect, we study, we get in our cars on the way, hopefully you think about it a little bit, and then you get where you're going, you put it into action. And if this, not made, if this Bible study or your church attendance or your Sunday school or small group attendance makes no difference in your job, it's not working for you. If it makes no difference in your marriage and family, it's not working for you. And Peter says, therefore. The first word, therefore. It means that the thing is there for something. It's leading somewhere. And here's where it's leading. Get ready for action. Now, literally, what is said here in the, in the original language is, gird up the loins of your mind. You say, huh? My mind doesn't have any loins. <laughs> well, it's a manner of speech. Uh, and it comes from the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we mentioned here the text Exodus 12, 11. Do you remember where that is when we studied Exodus? That is when the children of Israel are being given the orders about the Passover. And they've had, they're having the Passover. And they are girding up the loins of their, they're girding up their loins because they're getting ready to travel. They're getting ready to experience the exodus. And what, what do you do when you gird up your loins? You take your outer garment and you stuff it into your belt. It'd be like taking this coat and I just stuff it into my belt. Why am I stuffing it into my belt? To be stylish? Obviously not. Uh, I stuff it into my belt because I'm getting ready to run. And I don't want my coat, you know, snagging on things or holding me back or flapping in the wind. So that's what you do when you gird up the loins. You take, you take your loincloth and you put it in under your belt. And now you're ready to run. And that's what Peter is saying. We're getting ready to do something, guys. So if you have this hope, if you've been saved in Christ, get ready to run or get ready to walk anyway. But gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action as, as the NIV uh, translates, translates it. And then notice he says... Uh, be self-controlled. Now, this means pay attention. What he's getting ready to say is, gird up the loins of your mind, get your mind ready, and pay attention. Because you have a different mindset now. Your mind has been radically changed, as we'll see in a few moments. But pay attention to what's going on. Wake up, sober up, heads up, all these kinds of phrases that are used in the Bible. You know, get out of your drunken stupor. Get yourself all sobered up. Throw some water in your face. Get up out of the bed. Pay attention to what's going on. The Christian life is getting ready to take place. So notice the Christian life is a reflective life. We don't just run out and do the first thing that comes to mind. We are thinking men. We reflect on the global realities and the cosmic realities. And in light of those realities, with hope, 
We now gird up the loins of our mind. We're paying attention to what's going on around us. We're very intentional. So be very intentional and get ready to, to go into action. And then thirdly, he's saying focus on future grace. This is how you get moving. Get yourself ready and tend to move. Pay attention to what's going on around you. And especially focus on future grace. That is, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Now, the fact is, in the life that we live, there is something wrong with everything. I mean, if there's one thing that every religion agrees on, is that life screwed up. I don't know any religion that says, hey, everything's fine. The, basically, our religion is just, you just hang. Uh, I've never heard of a religion like that. Uh, I'd be tempted <laughs> if there were one. But they all have an assumption that life is screwed up. And they're all correct. Uh, that's where we all agree and we're all right. Uh, there is something wrong with everything. Murphy's Law is right. If something can go wrong, it will. That light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming at you from the other end, not light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, someone has said Murphy's, Murphy was way too optimistic. Uh, and life sometimes is definitely that way. So how do you get through it? Well, Peter's showing us. You set your hope. Set it. You have the power to set it. Because when you're given a new hope, you're also given a new mind. In your mind now, in Christ, you have the power to do this. Set your mind, says Paul in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. So you choose where you're going to set your mind. And when that train's coming at the other end of the tunnel, you can decide where you're going to set your mind. And what the apostle is saying here, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you. That is, set your hope fully on the future. And gentlemen, this has a lot of effects, but one of them is it makes us very patient. And I'd like you to think this morning about your patience or lack thereof. And I have to say, I'm not a particularly patient man. And you know what that reveals about me? I have not set my hope on the grace that is going to be revealed to me one day. In other words, I'm trying to grab it all right here, right now. Patience is deferred through hope. An example of this is one of my heroes. His name is Charles Simeon, Anglican priest, who as a young man, was a church, he was the rector as a very young man in Cambridge at uh, Trinity Church. And uh, the bishop appointed him, but the people didn't like it. This is in the late, uh, late 18th century. Actually, early 19th century. Uh, he served from 1782 to 1836. So he served a very long time. He was a young man. He was a professor at Cambridge. And a, a bishop appointed him rector at Trinity. And the steward of the church uh, was so opposed to him that he locked all of the pews. You couldn't get into the pews. And this went on for 12 years. So you'd go to church and you could not get in your family pew. And the only way you could go to church is to sit in the aisles, which can be very cold in the winter in Cambridge. And he did this for years. And the reason that everyone opposed him was not because he was boring like some of us. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, anything like that. It was because he was an evangelical. It was because he believed the Bible was the word of God. They said that... Uh, those who love the prayer book said that no one ever read the prayer book like Charles Simeon. And they said the reason 
that as he led them in worship reading from the prayer book, the reason it was so so meaningful was he believed it, uh, what he was reading in the prayer book. So many men just read it, uh, wrote. But he lasted 54 years in that place. And eventually the place warmed up. And after, as I say, after a number of years, they opened the pews and people actually could sit down uh, in a seat in church. But just think of that. I've been here 12 and a half years. But what if all those years nobody could sit in the pews <laughs> because they just hated me so much? <laughs> now, some people have been tempted <laughs> throw things at me and things like that. But, but you know, they, they, were, they were East Memphians. They, they've been nice. You know, they didn't do that. But uh, how did Simeon do that and love those people and serve them, which he did faithfully for so many years? Here's what he said. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. Notice the link between faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the isles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled. (laughs) And the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden. Here's a man who persevered with patience because of reflection. Thinking, believing, and hoping in the things that are promised by God. The promises of God are indeed very powerful. That's just one of the implications. But notice how this focus on future grace makes such a huge difference for us. You'll find, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, you'll find that when Paul launches into how to live a holy life, the first thing he talks about is setting your hearts on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The first rule of holiness is get your eyes up. If you're going to be a holy man in an unholy world and stay holy in it, you've got to get your eyes up. You've got to get your hope up. You've got to know where you're going. You have to be a man of destiny. Destiny right out of this world. Because you're a stranger here. And you live as a stranger here. A citizen there. With that mentality then, you persevere through life. And let's look at another great example of how hope makes a difference in the kind of moral life you live. Look on page 2037 in your Bible. 2037, that's 1 John 3. And John says in 1 John 3, how great is the love of the Father that's been lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Do you see what John is saying? We don't know everything about what's going to happen to us, but here's what we do know. We know that we shall be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. And you can't see Him and survive unless you're transformed to be like Him. In other words, unholiness in the presence of a holy God leads to destruction. 
So we know we'll be like Him because we're going to see Him. That much we know, says John. And then look what conclusion it leads to in the next verse. Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Do you see what's happening? When we get our hope on being in His presence, seeing Him as He is, we are increasingly conformed to His likeness right here as we think about it. You think about what you hope, or you become what you hope for. If you hope for a sexy, adulterous relationship, you're likely to end up with one. If you hope uh, to have people under you and dominate them, your group of friends may be small, but you'll probably dominate them. What you're hoping for is what you become. And if you're hoping for Christ, you're becoming like Him. That's what John is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. That's the way you're going to be active. That's the way you're going to move into the world. That's the way you're going to make a difference. We're talking about action here, girding up the loins of your mind. Well, while you're girding up the loins of your mind, or really as the girding up of the loins of your mind, get your mind on heaven. And that will enable you to be patient and it will also enable you to be focused upon what it is exactly you're trying to accomplish. If you don't do that, uh, you're like the guy who shot an arrow in the air and then when it landed on the earth, drew a ring around it. There's the target. You know, your target is whatever you hit. Secondly, verses 14 through 16 are simply telling us be different. Be different. You are obedient children, or literally here it says children of obedience. And we are called upon to be a different people. And this is what holiness is. The word for holiness means consecration or separation. So to be holy is to be separated over here, consecrated over here for this purpose. So, for example, remember when we studied Exodus, that all the, the furnishings of the tabernacle were cleansed and had anointing oil put on them and so on. Why? Because they were set over here for this use. You couldn't just go have breakfast and eat out of the bowl from the Holy of Holies. You know? It's set apart. It's consecrated. It's separated for, for that use. That's what it means for men to be holy. They're set apart. They're set over here. They're consecrated. They're anointed. For a special purpose. What is that purpose? Well, to glorify God and to serve Him in this world. We're His instruments, holy instruments. That's what it means to be different, to realize this about ourselves. What's so strange, of course, about this is that He's talking about us. <laughs> I mean, bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, we're supposed to be the special instruments of God. You know, it really is kind of funny. I, I don't know if I've told you this uh uh, recently, if I have, just forgive me for repeating myself, but when I was at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, we had a youth group leader named Lynn Teague. And uh, Lynn was always up to doing no good, like most youth group leaders. And uh, no, he was great, like ours is. And uh, one day, though, after the evening service, he said, I want all the parents to come to the youth meeting tonight. And I knew he was up to no good, and I knew I shouldn't trust him any further than I could throw him. But I get there to this meeting, and we have a ring of chairs and all the parents are supposed to sit in that chair, and the kids are standing out uh, behind us to watch us play some sort of a game. I hate this stuff. There were enough chairs for every adult, men and women, except for one adult, and that person was standing in the middle of the ring, and here's how the game went. 
The game was the person who's standing names a vice of some sort. And anyone who did it has to get up out of their chair and go to another chair. Kind of like musical chairs. I don't like this game when it starts. First woman gets up and says, spent a night in jail. (laughs) These are uh, elders and deacons and former presidents of the women in the church, Sunday school teachers and parents of all these kids. Next person gets up and says, smoked a joint. (laughs) Next person gets up, so drunk you didn't know where you were the next morning. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would have been surprised if I hadn't been so out of breath. But... (laughs) But... It, it was it was quite something to watch all these adults act like a bunch of idiots. And finally, this has been going on for about five minutes, and Sam Smart, who's standing next to me, finally said, Pastor, I'm just going to go ahead and confess now. If this thing goes any further, I'm starting to lie. <laughs> and, of course, Lynn's point was well made, wasn't it? Hey, look, kids, these folks aren't any better than you are. <laughs> They're, in fact, they're worse, if you want to know the truth. And it's true in my family. My kids are a whole lot better off where they are now than I was at their age. And uh, so Lynn was just making the point, hey, you know, when you feel really down about yourself and you're just amazed that you could commit such a stupid sin, you're in company. may not be good company, but you're in company. Uh, and these people that you look up to, your parents and your elders and your deacons, look at all of them, like a bunch of kids running around doing stupid stuff. This is the group, guys. These are the little angels who go to church and lead churches. These are the idiots that God is taking out of this world and putting them back in this world and saying, you're my kids, you're my kids, and you're going to be different. You, who've already shown what you're like, you're going to be different. And you are going to be the salt and the light in this world. It's always funny. It's always almost silly what God has done. It makes you silly, funny, uh, humored to think about what he's done. Now, look at what he does. He says it's obedient children, so there's going to be a unique perspective. You're a stranger in this world, but you're not a stranger to God. Gentlemen, far from it. You are not only adopted as his sons, you are adopted and... You are given His nature. As Peter says in the next letter that we're going to study, that we participate in the divine nature. That is, you've not only been legally adopted, which is one act of grace, which is absolutely remarkable. But those of you who are adoptive parents or adopted kids, you know that you take certain risks when you adopt somebody. They don't have your nature. And it sometimes produces some interesting tensions, doesn't it, when you're rearing them or when you were reared. God doesn't take that chance. He changes our nature. We are born again. We're born from above. We have, his, we have the divine nature implanted in our souls. This is an amazing thing. So you take people like us who do the things that we've done, and we get a new heart. That's what it means. We are His obedient children, so to speak. What does this mean then? 
That means, first of all, we must leave our past. Leave your past. He says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Okay, so you have your little game and you're all tripping over each other and you're running out of breath, proving what louses we all are. Okay, game over. Now look, let's not conform to the idiocy of the past. And first of all, your evil desires. I mean, we actually wanted to do those things. Those are things we actually enjoyed. We did them because we wanted to do them. And right now, there's, in our flesh, we still have this desire. We find ourselves wanting destructive things from time to time. It doesn't make any sense. But it's not at control center. When Christ comes into your heart, yeah, you still have flesh. You still have, as Paul calls it, it's in the members of your body. They're out here. But it's not here. What's here is the new man. He's taken over. And so you have a new control center, a new headquarters, and you can tell your flesh what to do because you've been given a new mind. And Paul says, those who set their mind on their flesh cannot please God and are actually hostile to God. But those who set their minds on the Spirit can then please the Lord. So we have a mind that can set ourselves, set our minds where we want to set our minds. And let's set our minds on heaven. And let's set our minds on the Spirit. And let's set our minds on Jesus Christ and be done with the evil desires of the past. It's amazing how simple this is and how clear it is. Now, some of you know the name Randy Alcorn. He's written books on stewardship and on heaven and some other popular books. But some years ago, he wrote a, an article in Leadership Magazine called The Consequences of a Moral Tumble. Speaking about sexual immorality, because there, you know, at that time he wrote it, I guess there were several more pastors who had fallen in, into sexual immorality, and so he just he just says, in his case, he found it helpful to review time to time the effects that such an action could have. And some of you have been involved in this, and you'll say, "There's the list." Listen, boys, there's the list. So those of you who've been involved in sexual immorality, you'll identify with what Alcorn is saying. But he says this helps me to think about where that heads. And he just lists several consequences. Number one, grieving the Lord who redeemed me. I know it's going to sadden him. Secondly, one day having to look Jesus in the face and give an account of my actions. Inflicting untold hurt on my best friend and loyal wife, losing her respect and trust. Hurting my beloved daughters. Destroying my example and credibility with my children and nullifying both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God. Causing shame to my family. Creating a form of guilt awfully hard to shake, even though God would forgive me. Even if, I, even if He would forgive me, would I forgive myself? Forming memories and flashbacks that could plague future intimacy with my wife. Wasting years of ministry training and experience for a long time, maybe permanently undermining the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in our community, bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God and all that is good, possibly bearing the physical consequences of such diseases as gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, herpes, and AIDS, perhaps infecting my wife or in the case of AIDS, even causing her death, possibly causing pregnancy with the personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of my sin. Causing shame and hurt to my friends, especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. You know, sometimes it just is very helpful to stop and think about the consequences of what you're getting ready to do and just list them out and be dead honest. Of cheating on your income taxes, just list it out. 
of forgetting your wife's anniversary. Just lift it, lift it up. <laughs> you know, of re, you know, wreaking vengeance, expressing verbal hot anger. Just think about all the consequences. Just get them all written out, guys, about what those sins do for you and the consequences of them. And of course, the greatest one is the first one he mentions, that it, it grieves the Lord who redeemed me. So Peter is saying, do not conform to these evil desires. I mean, even someone who is a pure atheist can see the consequences that that Alcorn was listing. And certainly we have more consequences that we're aware of because God has given us the mind to see it. And then he says, do not conform to these evil desires in which you had lived in ignorance. You did these things in ignorance. And if you look at Ephesians 4.18 and 19, you see there a list of these. Romans 1 gives it to you as well. That we had hard hearts that led to darkened minds and darkened understanding that leads to insensitivity to God and our neighbor, that leads to lascivious lifestyles, and leads to taking delight in other people being lascivious as well. And it all begins with a hardened heart that leads to a darkened mind. And what Peter is saying is the old lifestyle is driven by ignorance of the greatest cosmic realities that can be known to human beings. And that is that there is a God and that He is calling people to to imitate Him and to live in holiness. And there is a heaven and there is a hell. It's just amazing how people just rampantly live their lives ignoring the greatest fundamental and universal principles in the universe. And he says, that's the way you used to live. And all this stuff you did was in ignorance. So don't be an ignoramus. Be a person who thinks. Be a person who is not conforming to those things. Now, how? first of all, then, being different, we leave our past. And then secondly, we imitate our Father. Imitate your Father. Imitate Him. He says... Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Imitate him. Think about him. Christ is the full expression of the Father. Christ took on human form so that you could meditate on him and become like him. The Father doesn't have a body. It's hard to imagine him, isn't it? The second person of the Trinity actually has a body. And it's given to you so that you you can imitate Him. You can see. You can understand. He became human. Lived life in front of us. And so we imitate the Father by imitating the Son. Imitate your Father. Because first of all, He called you. That is, He called you, as we'll see in the next chapter, He called you out of darkness. He called you out of ignorance. He called you out of hardness of heart called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The light of understanding. The light of a a heart free from sin. The light of love. The light of a future hope. The light of knowing Him. He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So He's the one who did that. Give Him praise by the way that you live. Imitate Him. How dear it is. You know, when... When your young sons just look at, look at you and want to be just like you. When your sons are imitating you, you know how that feels. It's scary, isn't it? 
but they, they want to be just like you. And you're trying to live a life that is worthy of their imitation. Well, the Father is worthy of our imitation. And He's saying, you are my children, so why don't you have the same desire to imitate me just as your own sons want to imitate you. So He called us. He is also holy, number two. And you find this throughout the Scripture. Psalm 99 emphasizes it, of course. And then in Isaiah, when, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, what does he learn about the Lord? He learns what the cherubim and seraphim are singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. What we know is the Sanctus. And those of you in the Episcopal Church sing it every Sunday probably, the Sanctus. That's the seraphim. It's the song of heaven. When they look at God and they want to make one major statement about God, what attribute do they pick? His holiness. He is wholly other. He is different. He is pure. And basically what Peter is saying is imitate your Father and know one thing about Him. To begin with, He is holy, so be like Him. And then thirdly, we see that He demands holiness, and He always has. You look in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and He demands holiness. Leviticus is just repetitively saying, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. The Lord your God is holy. The Lord your God is holy. And these Egyptians who had a formal, I mean these Israelites who had a formal life, a former life in Egypt lived like slaves who did not know the law of God that they came to know at Sinai, were being told, look, there's something about your God you're going to have to know. He is holy and your lifestyle must conform to Him. It's an amazing thing when you look at only 40 years, one generation, and a whole nation of people have been constituted around the holy law of God. It's an amazing thing. And that's what's happened to us. We fall into love with Him. We become holy. So get moving. Be different. Thirdly, fear God. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We're strangers. We're extraterrestrials, or as someone called us, neo-terrestrials. We're the, the ones who have new life. We're living on, on this earth. But we live in reverent fear. Why? You say, why should we be fearful? Because God is God. That's why. To live in reverent fear is simply to act as though God is alive. Because the God who is, is awesome. He is fearsome. And therefore, to know Him is to fear Him. He's your Father. But you fear Him. It's, it's hard for us to imagine in the States, but if you go to a, 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 a nation that's monarchical, you can understand. You're a prince. But when the king arrives, you bow just like everybody else. You have his DNA. He's your dad. You're very proud of him. You have an intimate relationship with him. But... When, when you're with the host of people, you bow along with everybody else because he could take your life just as quickly as anybody else's. He's completely in charge. He has all the rights and privileges of king. So your father is on the throne. Fear him. Revere him. First of all, he is an impartial judge. Your father is an impartial judge. He judges each man's work impartially. And this, of course, would be consistent with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that we'll be saved. Why will we be saved? Because all of our sins have been paid for. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and then you commit a whopper, you're still saved. David was when he committed adultery and murder. He did that as a believer. That's, that's pretty bad. Pretty bad. But he, he came to the Lord. You can read about it in Psalm 51. He genuinely, not just was sorry, but repentant. 
and trusting in the Lord and accepted the consequences of his own sin and in God's providence walked through those consequences for the rest of his life and received God's judgments on him, his God's discipline upon him as a son. Instead of saying, oh, now I'm a Christian, God, you can't you can't do that. I'm going to be angry at you. No, he received God's discipline, repented of his sin and trusted in the Lord and still led an effective life. But what Peter is saying here is that our work will be judged impartially. And Paul put it this way in First Corinthians three. He says that, you know, our, our work will be judged whether we built on wood, hay and stubble or whether we built on endurable Precious things, gold and silver and so on. So the fire will come and the wood, hay and the stubble will burn. And only those foundations, only that part of the building that's been well built and structured to to stand up in the judgment of God will stand. So, I mean, I can imagine it like this. You know, at the end of my life, here comes a dump truck and just dumps out a whole bunch of wood, hay and stubble. And there's my life, my work. And then you just sift through and you find, oh, here's a little gold nugget. You know, here's a little thing over here. Here's a little... And that's what's going to endure. The rest of it just burned up. So fear God, because as his children, our work will be judged, whether it was built on him or built on wood, hay and stubble. Secondly, remember, you were bought at a price. You were redeemed not with not with uh, perishable things such as silver or gold. You redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. A precious price was paid for you. And God sent His Son for you. God loved you before all eternity. And when you fell into sin, He sent His Son to pay the ultimate price. You ought to fear God over that. As well as be very, very grateful to Him. Here's a God who turns the universe on its head in order to rescue you. He is powerful. As I have said you know, with our children, if they knew how much we loved them, it would terrify them. Well, if you knew how much God loved you, it would probably terrify you too. And you'd fear Him even more. God will move universes to get you. Fear Him. When He's in love with you, He'll do whatever He needs to do to get you home safely. Even if He has to kill you. So fear Him. He paid the ultimate price where His Son did. And notice three things about this. First of all, the price was great. Not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. And we were purchased by the blood of Jesus. You've been bought. You're owned. You're owned by God. So what rights do you have that He doesn't give you? If He doesn't give you a right, you don't have it. doesn't matter what the law court says. doesn't matter what anybody else says. If He didn't give you a right, you don't have it because He owns you. So you get your rights and your privileges and your duties and your responsibilities and the framework for life and everything you hope for, you get it right straight from Him. Because He is your Father who is feared. The price was great. Secondly, the effect was great. He has redeemed us from an empty way of life handed down to you. And this can be said about any culture. That empty things are handed down to us. I mentioned in, in our church the other day, we were talking about race relations. And I said, you know what? Every one of us was handed down something that needs to be renounced. My children will do the same thing. I've even unintentionally handed down some things that need to be renounced. Now, sometimes you get guys in a room like this 
and they want to defend their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. And I've had conversations with, with men in, in Memphis for 12 and a half years, and we'll talk about race relations here, and, and I just find people kind of get their backs up. Because if, if you talk about a problem that was handed down, you're blaming my daddy. And I knew my daddy, and he was a good man. And he didn't mean to be a racist. Well, he didn't mean to. He just was. Uh, and you know what? If you're going to live a holy life, you are going to have to come to grips with something. You were handed down some things you need to renounce. And you can't make a God out of your father on earth and also have a God out of father in heaven. Choose. And when you pick the God in heaven, you will find you have even more tender love for your father with all of his mistakes and all of his sins and all of the emptiness that God handed down to you. This crowd is largely white. So you know what I'm talking about. I'd say the same thing to any culture. If we had a dominant group that was Asian, we'd talk about the thing, empty things that are handed down to you from Asian heritage. If we had Hispanics, we could do the same thing. African Americans, we'd do the same thing. And we must be loving critics and analysts of our own tradition. Those of you who are Republicans, you've become quite expert at critiquing the Democrats. Those of you who are Democrats, you're quite expert at critiquing the Republicans. And there's plenty on both sides. Go at it, boys. But here's the real challenge for the Christian. Why don't you critique your own party? If the Democrats can find so much wrong with your Republican Party, maybe you can find a few things. If the Republicans can find so many things wrong with the Democratic Party, maybe you can find a few things as a Democrat. Christians are the people who begin with themselves. And realize we were handed something often that was really empty and built on wood, hay, and stubble and not on the precious blood of Jesus. Notice, thirdly, the giver is great. The one who gave his blood for us is a lamb without blemish. And you know, in the Old Testament, we were told to bring only unblemished lambs. Let me tell you what. Is there any such thing as an unblemished lamb? Is there any such thing as an unblemished man? You know, I, I did a video thing for our, our capital campaign uh, about two or three months ago. And when, when I was shown uh, a version of it, I went, good heavens, look at all those splotches all over my face. Man, I'm talking about blemishes. I mean, just just speckled. I, I look like a speckled hen. Just, and you don't know until all those TV lights get on you and then they, they move in real close. You, know? you can't believe. Is there any such thing as an unblemished man? Well, not standing here, and from the looks of it, not there either. But there is not. There is one. There is one. The unblemished Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who laid down His life. And you'll find when you get to heaven that all of heaven is saying, "There is the Lamb who, looking as though He had been slain, who's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah." And let us all praise and worship Him, the unblemished Lamb who's been enthroned. And then, lastly, notice that you are given unique privileges. It's for your sake. For your sake that he was revealed in these last times. Jesus was foreknown from all eternity. The word there is foreknown, not chosen. Uh, he was foreknown from all eternity. It was God's intent from eternity to send him. But he sent him during your time for your sake. Why? So that you would know him. Why? So that through him you have not only a glorious revelation, but a saving mediation. Through him you believe in God. 
Through Him, you know God. Through Him, you live a holy life. Look at the love of God calling you to go out of here today and live for Him. A glorious Father who impartially judges every work in the universe who said, you're my children, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I've sent my Son for you and I've raised Him from the dead gloriously to be enthroned at my right hand. And that's your older brother who's at my right hand. You're in this family. You belong. Now go live for me until I call you home. Isn't it simple? Isn't it difficult? But by the grace of God, we believe in Him and we have hope in Him. And we are deeply, deeply grateful. This is what it means to be an unholy man in an unholy world who's taken out of it and made holy and put back in an unholy world and kept holy in it. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the calling to holiness. We admit this morning it's way over our head. And yet we accept the calling. Therefore, Lord, command what You will, but grant what You command. And by the grace of Your Spirit, by the power of Your Word, with our vision set on Jesus Christ, help us, O God, to be men who live holy lives just today. We'll just ask for today that we may serve You faithfully. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you, gents.